This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in iTunes. Tonight we take up this issue of uh, anti-Semitism in large part because we are marking the 50th anniversary of the beginning of the Second Vatican Council, which was convened by Pope John XXIII and because of the publication of two new and extraordinary books. First, David Nirenberg's Anti-Judaism, The Western Tradition, and second, John Connolly's From Enemy to Brother, The Revolution in Catholic Teaching on the Jews, 1933 to 1965. Professor Nirenberg is the Deborah R. and Edgar D. Janota Professor of Medieval History and Social Thought at the University of Chicago and is the author of Communities of Violence, Persecution of Minorities in the Middle Ages, as well as several other volumes which he has edited, uh, in some cases with colleagues, uh, such as uh, Judaism and Christian Art, uh, Aesthetic, um, anxieties from the catacombs to colonialism, which he edited with Herbert Kessler. John Connolly is professor at the University of California, Berkeley, where he, studied, where he studies modern, um, the modern, e- modern East and Central European political and social history, comparative education, the history of nationalism and racism, and also the history of Catholicism. Among his many publications are Captive University, The Sovietization of East German, Czech, and Polish Higher Education, 1945 to 1956, and an edited volume with Michael Grutner, Universities Under Dictatorship. This is a conversation tonight, which we hope will allow us to better understand anti-Judaism and also the remarkable changes that have taken place in Catholic-Jewish relations since the beginning of the Holocaust. I would like to start with an intellectual and biographical uh, question to ask each of our guests, Professor Nirenberg and Professor Connolly. I I, I hope that you would also, as you think about this question and speak to us, um, think about how it is that you became interested in each of these um, issues and questions that you've been involved in in these two books. So I'd like to begin with uh, Professor Nirenberg and ask him to tell us a bit about his intellectual uh, journey through this book and also to speak to us about its central content. So please welcome David Nirenberg. Thank you very much, and thank you for the invitation. Thank you for your presence. On, but it's to me a glorious day, but then I'm from Chicago, and this counts as glorious. <laughs> I understand from your comments today that this is a rather gray Son of Arbor Day. I can answer the question, I think, with unusual clarity. It's very rare that one knows when one started a project or thought that something had to be done. But in my case, I remember exactly when it was. It was... I forgot. No. September 18th, 2001. And I remember it because I was going to go give a talk at NYU on my specialty, which is Muslim-Christian-Jewish interaction in the Middle Ages. 
And I was teaching at Johns Hopkins, so I was going to take the train. I did take the train. But the train was full, uncharacteristically, of politicians. Uh, John McCain was sitting behind me. Richard Pearl was sitting to my right. You may not know who Richard Pearl was, but he was one of the architects of the uh, Iraq War. And um, lots of other people. And the reason was they were going to ground zero where uh, President Bush was about to give or giving a speech that day. I'm not exactly sure about the precise day. And Richard Pearl spent the whole time sitting next to me on his cell phone trying to convince Leslie Stahl, who is a, a news anchor, to do a story on why Saddam Hussein had bombed the Twin Towers. And then he would call his colleagues at the Defense Department and explain to them what he was trying to do. All this I, I was sitting next to. I got off the train in New York feeling that I was watching history being made, feeling that I was watching the new fear of the American people, a, a fear at, at a, a new danger, uh, an unexpected uh, tragedy, uh, being given a face. And that face was a Muslim face, the face of Saddam Hussein. Well, I got onto the subway to get to NYU, and the subway was empty because that line actually runs under the World Trade Center. There were only two people on it other than me. They, one of them was a welder going to Ground Zero as part of the cleanup effort and a friend of his. And they were talking about why this had happened, what had brought this calamity, this tragedy upon the U.S., upon New York. And their answer was the Jews. Uh, their argument, they, 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 they had several theories. One was that Jewish greed had made New York a symbol of capitalism, and this was why uh, the World Trade Center had been bombed. Another one was uh, Jewish deicide. Another one was the Middle East conflict. They had multiple accounts, um, some of them uh, more participating in, in a more contemporary rationality than others. But here I felt, again, our new fear being given a face, uh, as people attempted to explain what had happened. And that face was a Jewish one. Now, I could have written a book about anti-Islamism. I wrote a book about anti-Judaism. Perhaps that has to do with biography. Um, I don't know. But in any event, I wanted to explain, I wanted to understand how it is that, that anti-Judaism could be used to make sense of new tragedies, new events happening in, a, in, in our own contemporary world. And what relation these ideas, which were familiar to me as a medievalist, right? what relation these had to our world and how they were transformed so that they could be effective ways of explaining when bad things happen in new worlds. So I decided I had to, I had to unpack this history. Now the thing is, this history is long. Where do you stop? It's like, um, I guess it's like an endless case of psychoanalysis, which you, you have to keep on going until, until the womb. Um, and I, I ended up in ancient Egypt. Uh, that's where I began the book. I could probably have begun the book in Babylonia or in other places, but I began it in ancient Egypt, and, and partly because it was there that I found the most explicit pre-Christian and pre-Islamic uh, uses of Judaism in order to explain the cosmos. And I mean anti-Judaism in order to explain the cosmos. That is, it's where I found the, the first systematic attempt to use thinking about Jews and thinking about Judaism in order to explain the world and to see one's place in the world as to some degree an overcoming of Judaism. So in ancient Egypt, you find drought, disease, military defeat, all, when I say ancient, I mean Persian and, uh, and Hellenistic, all being explained in terms of, 
of, of, Jude, of Judaism, of Israel, etc., of the Israelites, etc. Um, so much so that you find uh, embassies of Egyptians going to Roman emperors to protest tax policy, colonial policy, whatever you want to call it, and calling Roman emperors like Claudius or Trajan or Commodus, calling them Jews. Now, none of these emperors are Jews. And in fact, but, but, but somehow it means something very powerful to the delegates or they wouldn't do it because they're risking their lives. In fact, they all got their heads cut off for calling the emperors Jews. So I, I, I set out to explain in that chapter what is the, the logic? How does Judaism or anti-Judaism make sense to these people even when they're talking to powers that are not Jewish? So I, I wanted to use a pre-Christian and a pre-Islamic example in order to show that these are, this is a, very, this is a, a possibility that does not depend on uh, Christianity or Islam. But of course, it became much more uh, central to systems of thought in these new and great religions of late antiquity. And I consider Islam part of whatever we mean by the Western tradition. Um, and in, in that sense, this, the, Muslim, the story about Islam is central to my book. Uh, so I think it's pretty easy to see why early Christianity and early Islam need to engage Judaism in ways that, say, the ancient Egyptians did not, partly because they claim to be appropriating the Jewish prophetic tradition and understanding it better or in a new way than the Jews did. And, and they need to explain, too, uh, the, the relationship of these former holders, former owners of the tradition to the new religion. So when you read the uh, scriptures of Christianity, as you, there are many, many places in which you see them struggling with this question of, of how to read the old scriptures in new ways and, and using Jews, Judaism, Pharisees, Sadducees, and many other figures of Judaism to do this work. And the same is true in the Quran. Many surahs full of attempts to reread and engage and explain why the new prophecy is, uh, makes more sense. So uh, what, what was really interesting to me was to see how this way of explanation produced a system of thought that was capable of being used not only against Jews, but primarily, much more importantly, against anyone against each other. So, for example, I don't know how many of you are, know Galatians by heart, but it's a, it's a fascinating text for this history. In Galatians 2.14, you have a very curious moment in which St. Paul and St. Peter are arguing about the proper way to be Christian. And St. Paul accuses St. Peter of hypocrisy and says to him, why do you, who do not live as a Jew, want to compel the Gentile Christians, the Gentile followers of Jesus, to Judaize. And he coins this word, or he borrows this word, Judaize. And note, it's being used not to talk about Jews. Jews don't Judaize. It's being used to talk about followers of Jesus, Christians Judaize. And it's the logic of this word, the power of this word, that comes to make anti-Judaism a concept that can be used to make sense of any uh, problem in the world, not just problems involving real Jews. So in fact, there are very, very few real Jews in my book, but there are many, many Judaized people. Just I can't. You know, I, don't, I don't want to cover the whole history. I have only ten minutes, so let me just compress the power of the logic into one short poem written about 
Well, it's a slightly long poem, but my quote will be very short. Written about 600 years, 1600 years after Paul wrote Galatians, it's a poem by George Herbert, and it's called Self-Condemnation. Written in an England in which there are no living Jews, George Herbert writes, He that doth love, and love amiss this world's delights, before true Christian joy, hath made a Jewish choice, and is a Judas Jew. Now, he's talking about Christians. Any Christian who is in a mistaken relationship to the world doth love and love amiss this world's delights. So Judaism came to mean for early Christianity, for early Islam, and for all of the traditions that followed, a mistaken attitude towards the world and God. Either uh, a mistaken, an, an overattention an over to the things of this world, an excessive love for people in the flesh, for people in this world, uh, those who store their treasure on earth, not in heaven. Those are the Judaizers, right? Uh, or an excessive attention to law as opposed to spirit, or an excessive attention to letter as opposed to uh, inner meaning. So through these categories, Judaism and anti-Judaism could be made could be used to make sense of nearly any mistaken relation to the world, and it could be applied to nearly anybody. In fact, there is no early, there's no sect of Christianity that is not, does not accuse the other of being Judaizers, and there's no sect of Islam that is not accused by its opponents of being Jews or Judaizers. Um, so this was the logic I wanted to explain, and, 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 and I want to show its history across time, how this logic is fruitful, how it helps every new age make sense of the problems it confronts. And I could, I could, I mean, it's a 630-page book. I could give you all kinds of details. I could tell you about, for example, why eating eggplant is a Jewish activity, why Christian cities attack each other as eggplant eaters. Uh, there's pages on that, but I'm not going to tell you about that. Let me just give you one really simple example, or well, let's say well-known example. It's incredibly complex. Shakespeare's Merchant of Venice. We need to ask ourselves, we need to understand why a figure of Judaism, Shylock, is so useful for thinking about contract, for thinking about money lending, for thinking about the nature of marriage and the nature of relations between people, for thinking about what it means to sell tickets in a theater, all new activities, for thinking about mercantilism, all new activities that Shakespeare is putting on the stage. What's the difference between a merchant and a Jew, asks Portia in the beginning of Act 4. This is a society without any Jews, but it's a society in transformation, and it's thinking about all of those transformations by creating figures of Judaism, which isn't to say that those figures of Judaism, even though they're not real Jews, don't have real effect on the history of Jews. When the Jews' bill is being debated in England hundreds of years later to decide whether or not to give Jews citizenship, exhibit A in the argument for why you should not give Jews citizenship is look at Shylock. Do you want him to be a citizen? Shylock is an invention of Christian anti-Judaism, not a real Jew, right? So uh, the book is full of attempts to show the, the work this kind of logic has done and how that has created a system of thought that tends to generate certain forms of anti-Judaism with real consequences, of course, for living Jews. I, 
I, I look at lots of different events, for example, the French Revolution, the Enlightenment, etc. All of them, in order to show the, the increasing power of this logic, so great is this power that by the 20th century, so now we're in plain modernity, secular if you want to call it secular, although one of the things we're going to learn from uh, John is just how mistaken those historians who thought about this as a secular age have been. In the early 20th century, there is no discipline in the, uh, in the, in the university that does not use Judaism as a critical language for understanding itself. In fact, I think there's an Austrian parliamentarian who says in 1907, this is one of my fav- favorite quotes, Wissenschaft ist, uh, maybe he says Kultur ist, was ein Jude von anderen abschreibt. Culture is what one Jew plagiarizes from another. In other words, all of the works of the intellect, all of the academic research, every department from biology, mathematics, music, art, all of them developed forms of criticizing each other in terms of Judaism. One of the most important German mathematical journals founded in the 1930s was called Deutsche Mathematik. What's its goal? Its goal is to develop a pure mathematics independent of Jewish taint. one of the most important physics textbooks written by a Nobel Prize winner in the 1920s exhorts young physicists not to study too much abstract mathematics because studying too much abstract mathematics will Judaize them and kill their instinct for laboratory work, for experimental physics. Uh, This kind of logic applied to all these fields. And I want to suggest that we can't understand the great impresarios, the success of the great impresarios of this logic, the Nazis, unless we understand the degree to which this system of thought had permeated all of uh, Western critical culture, Western critical thought. Um, You all know that, of course, the Nazis deployed this to great effect, but what's often forgotten is that the way they talked about Judaism and the way they attacked Judaism attacked many people that were not Jews. If you think about, for example, the great art, the Nazi art exhibition, the Entratete Kunst, uh, degenerate art exhibition they did, I think of the 120 or so artists exhibited there as, as, as degenerate and Jewish, only six were Jews, by even by the Nazi definition, of, of Jewish race. Uh, but it's a, it's a logic that uh, applies much more broadly. In music, the Nazis condemned as Jewish musicians, musicians like Hindemith that were, were not Jewish at all, or as Jewish mathematicians, mathematicians like Ernst Zemelo that were not Jewish at all. It's a logic about uh, how a system of how thought can be classified as Jewish and not Jewish, and how the Judaism of that thought has to be overcome. So Really, the book is a claim about the importance of the history of thought. That is to say that the way in which we represent our world, the way in which we make sense of our world, the way in which we construct what we think is the reality of our world, has everything to do with the way in which we've learned to think with our habits of thought. Uh, And if we want to avoid, and here I think, again, um, there's a real relationship between the two books, uh, because I think John's book is about what he sees as the breaking of a habit of thought. And if we want to avoid uh, being prisoners of our habits of thought, we need to become critical. We need to become aware of the history of those habits of thought. Now, I ended my book in 1950. Um, partly because I, I, I didn't want to get enmeshed in the politics of the present day. But I do think that we are again uh, in a moment in which much of the world has learned to think of the challenges that confront it in terms of Judaism. Uh, 
Now, it's also true that most, uh, that many critical thinkers today think that history has nothing to teach us about the problems we face in the present day. In fact, when people invoke the history of anti-Semitism or the history of anti-Judaism, this is often dismissed as an apologetic tactic to deflect attention from real injustices happening in the present day. Nevertheless, it is striking that we live in a period in which millions of people, in fact, billions of people, are told on an almost daily basis or that the challenges they face in their lives are due to questions of Judaism. So uh, my book doesn't intervene directly in those questions. It simply suggests that a critical consciousness about the history of our habits of thought that produce those kinds of certainties is perhaps the only antidote to the dangers that those certainties create. Thank you. Good evening. So my book, in a sense, is a, an attempt to show how the Catholic Church, as an, as, as, as an international institution with, um, that teaches moral, about morality um, and about faith, has dealt with this legacy of anti-Judaism, um, so-called Christian anti-Judaism, by which I mean the teaching of contempt for Jews based on religious texts. The church issued a document in 1965 called Nostre Tate, which uh, are Latin words that mean in our time, uh, which is generally thought to have uh, broken with this tradition by issuing certain statements uh, about the church's relation to Judaism that uh, refute major components of this Christian tradition. In my book, I, I think I break this tradition down or I simplify it into three components. I think you could call them three interlocking components. What is anti-Judaism? It's not actually a word that we tend to use. We tend to think of hatred of Jews as being anti-Semitism, but, but both David and I talk about anti-Judaism. In the case of, of Christianity, anti-Judaism is, is thought to be precisely what religion uh, causes people to think about Jews, thus leading to, to, to contempt. So three uh, components the first um, would be the claim that Jesus was not Jewish. In fact, that Jesus was anti-Jewish, that somehow Jesus stood outside of Judaism and criticized Judaism from without. And the similar, similar claims are made about Paul and the apostles, who, have, of course, all were Jews and thought of themselves as Jewish. A second claim would be that the Jews rejected Christ and, and killed Christ and therefore live under a curse, the curse of the crime of deicide, and the third claim, the third part of this um, complex of thought that I, that I call anti-Judaism would be the claim that this situation, this curse, would rest upon the Jews until the end of time, until a moment at which the Jews would convert to Christianity, would enter the church, would recognize Jesus as their Messiah. Um, I think the, what, what, what connects these three components is the basic belief in Christians' mind, minds that Jews were destined to behave according to a script given to them by Christians. And I think this may be unique in the history of religions, of one religion essentially giving another a script for behavior. And this script implicitly expropriates Jews of their subjectivity, their ability to be human, human beings, and therefore of their humanity. 
The question uh, for historians is whether the story of how this changed is even a question, because we tend to think of something as, as, as problematic as, as this, as this tradition of anti-Judaism must have changed almost automatically with the Holocaust. This event must have revealed to humanity the problems with these ideas and led the, the, the church on a different path, almost with no human beings being in, involved. In fact, this is, in, at least in my book, I argue it, it, is, it is indeed a question because the church uh, claims to be an institution with a teaching that doesn't change. So how could it change? How could it teach something radically different in 1965 from what it had taught for centuries before that? Um, I, I argue that the change cannot be understood without the event of the Holocaust. The Holocaust is crucial to the change that takes place in 1965, but the change was not necessary or automatic it had to be grounded in Christian theology, in Christian scripture, and it had to be done by people, had to be done by actual human beings. Um, how did I get to this, this topic? Um, I actually am not a historian of the church, and I'm not a historian of, of, um, of the regions that I study in this book. I'm a historian of Poland, actually, a historian of Eastern Europe. And how I got to it was more or less the same time, I don't know, for, this, for different reasons, but uh, maybe for similar curiosities, um, I was interested in studying uh, the question of violence in interwar Eastern Europe, Eastern Europe between the two world wars, the Eastern Europe uh, before the Holocaust. Um, but unlike a lot of people in my, uh, in my field, I wanted to study people who stood up against violence and tried to develop arguments from the Christian or other religious traditions to oppose racism and anti-Semitism. However, after studying the situation in Poland for quite some time, I didn't find anyone actually doing this. I know it sounds, but I generally uh, read, and I could talk about this in, um, in detail, I, I read everything I could get from Eastern Europe. And, I, and when I looked for arguments that inter interested me, they tended to come from other places, from Austria, Switzerland, and France. And they tended to come from Catholics who had left Nazi Germany and uh, were trying to oppose Nazism from the outside. My book essentially traces the adventures or the misadventures of, the, of a very small group of Catholic intellectuals from the 1930s to the 1960s in five episodes. The first in which, in the 1930s, they tried to develop arguments against anti-Semitism. Um, they, they, they developed arguments in particular against Nazi racism as it was applied against Jews in that period. Uh, but I, I find in, in the book that actually, in opposing racism, they revealed the core of their own anti-Judaism. At the end of the day, they still insisted that Jews had to behave according to a Christian script. And that script was to turn to Christ and thereby unleash the resolution of all the world's problems. This is a field of theology known as eschatology, which is not widely studied or understood. I don't understand it. But it's very important for this study. Because these, uh, these foremost opponents of, of Hitler actually were hoping that the Jews, by converting to Christ, would bring down Hitler. This is literally what they thought in the, 19, in the 1930s. They were missionaries to the Jews. The one positive thing that came out of, of their work in the 1930s was a turn to Christian scripture that had been neglected for centuries about the Jews, and that's St. Paul's letter to the Romans, chapters 9 to 11. I'll come back to that. Episode two in my story, 1945, I find that actually the Holocaust witness to the Holocaust knowledge of the Holocaust changed nothing in this basic anti-Judaism. Even the foremost opponents of racism and anti-Semitism still thought of themselves as being missionaries to the Jews. Episode three, in 1950, there is a break in one major Catholic thinker. Suddenly he writes that 
conversion is inappropriate, an inappropriate attitude for Christians toward Jews, uh, and that a Jew can be pleasing to God as a Jew. This is Karl Thieme, little-known theologian at the center of my, my book. Episode four uh, is the 1950s. It's ways in which Karl Thieme and a very small group of uh, activists try to, try, try to put forward this, 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 this new view of theirs based in Christian scripture that the church does not need to uh, conduct mission to Jews. The interesting thing about virtually all of the people I study, and there aren't that many, maybe two dozen, is that they tended to be converts. Converts often from, mostly from Judaism, sometimes from Protestantism. Episode five uh, brings us to the spring of 1964 to an event... um, in which this enterprise almost failed entirely. That is, this, this document that you have in your hands, I think you all got copies of it, Nostra Etate, almost uh, didn't work because in the spring of 1964, some conservative, conservative advisors close to Paul VI, the pope of that time, doctored the wording of a resolution that had been carefully prepared by the theologians that I studied. And when they doctored the resolution, they brought it back to this idea of a Christian script for the Jews. They said in their doctored uh, in this doctored text, that the Jewish that the church looked forward to a moment when the Jewish people would join the church. Um, this caused an outrage, although it was uh, actually a secret, confidential uh, draft. It caused international outrage because it was quickly leaked to the press by friends uh, of a, a strong statement against anti-Semitism. The American rabbi Abraham Joshua Heschel said at this point that if faced um, with the choice of conversion or death. He was ready to go to Auschwitz at any time. And note that this doctored resolution didn't say anything about conversion or mission. It merely projected a moment in the distant future, an eschatological moment at which the Jews would enter the church. But Rabbi Heschel understood that this eschatology actually had a dehumanizing impact that was directly connected to Auschwitz. I could talk more about that. The solution was the fall of 1964, three people that I study, three Catholic priests, all of whom were converts to the church, uh, came up with a, with a new wording based in the minor prophet Zephaniah that is in uh, the handout you have. Um, the new statement, which I can talk about in, in detail, um, is almost entirely from Romans 9 to 11. Part of it is from this minor prophet, but most of it is, is inspired by St. Paul's letter to the Romans chapters 9 to 11. This is St. Paul's last letter. It's sometimes called his testament. It's, a moment, it's the only moment in the New Testament where uh, a writer actually directs, tells an audience directly or contemplates directly to an audience what it is to make of the fact, what followers of Christ are to make of the fact that by and large Jews were not followers of Christ. So this is an, a very important text, although it had been neglected for many centuries. This text and currently church teaching, that is since 1965, makes no mention of conversion or of baptism, does say, uh, does, does hold out promise of salvation for all of Israel, that is according to Romans chapter um, 11, verse 28, and gives no script for how Jews are supposed to behave. Thank you. Thank you both very much, and I think you can see from these uh, summaries um, that these are two very unique and extraordinary books that are exciting and approach the topic of anti-Judaism in 
different and new ways. Would you be my agent? <laughs> yeah, but you know, I, I'd love to do that, David. But I'm, I'm just speaking the truth as I hear it, because you know, one of, one of the issues that I want to raise uh, is, first of all, do you have anything to say to him? And do you have anything to say to him about the presentations of your books? Because you made references to certain overlaps between your books. And before I ask any of my questions, I thought I should give you uh, the chance to speak with one another. Well, I get, um, can, can I be heard, by the yes, way? Yes, yes. Um, I wonder whether, whether, whether you think that there's, there's a way in which this anti-Judaism is subject to change over time. Because um, from your presentation and also from reading your book, I read it a number of months ago, I had a sense that, that, that anti-Judaism, as, as, you, as you conceive of it actually, is, has been with us for a very long time. It seems to transcend culture, political uh, regime, um, age. Do you see it, it, it waning or gaining in strength? What would you say about its historical sure. character? That's a very historian's question, right? Um, and I'm a, I happen to be a historian. Uh, and so I would say that um, I, I, don't, I, don't, I don't have, I don't know how you got that impression. Um, in my sense of, what, of my argument is that anti-Judaism is constantly transforming itself. It's constantly being put to new kinds of work. And, it's con- and so I look for a lot of different metaphors, as many philosophers of history have. In fact, for example, Nietzsche has a beautiful metaphor where he talks about the, the, the mask that every great idea has in order to penetrate, to endure through time. But behind the mask, all kinds of transformation are taking place. Right? So in order to, uh, to be useful, to be relevant to new ages, the, the kinds of work that anti-Judaism is doing, the kinds of meaning it has are constantly being transformed. And the work that anti-Judaism is asked to do then transforms the possibilities for thought in the future. So it's a constantly uh, iterative model. That would be my, uh, my, uh, my Could view. Can I make just a brief follow-up? Of course. Well, see, part of, part of the, um, the approach that people have taken to things like racism or ethnic hatred is, is education, is, is to show right. that, re- that the concept of race is a fiction, or, or, or to simply combat the stereotypes associated with an ethnic group. And I think over time, we could see the weakening of those stereotypes. Do you, do you see any, any, any opportunity for weakening anti-Judaism by similar methods of education? Well, I would say, of course I do. I wouldn't have written the book. Uh, the book is an attempt to educate, just, I, I think, as yours is. And I guess if I had a question for you, it would be exactly the same. It would be, um, your book is an attempt to describe a moment in a change in a habit of thought. It's a striking claim that for... Uh, and now I, I'm someone who specializes in periods before John, so I actually don't agree with John when he says Romans hadn't been read. Or it had been read differently. So the issue is, how does this transformation take place? And John shows us how an extraordinarily small group of people working largely from outside the church, that is their marginal figure, you call them border cross, they're from outside the converts, mostly. Uh, you say without exception, there isn't even an exception to at prove a, the rule. At a is a, moment. Is a, is a, is a, is a, there isn't even an exception to prove the rule, he says. Uh, they're, com- they're outsiders. How this tiny group of people affects a massive change in church thought. So my question would be, how massive is this change? Because one of the things that's very striking is that despite uh, Nostra Aetate, you yourself show how a number of popes since then, a number of councils of bishops, like the American bishops since then, a great many Catholic thinkers continue to believe 
positions that are in violation of Australia type. In fact, even Pius VI, in, in, in his first... Oh. What, Paul, in, his, in one of his first speeches after Nostradamus, gives uh, is essentially using the old position. Benedict the Sixteenth, in his liturgical uh, 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 changes and in his writings on Jesus, essentially returning to the old, or maybe not returning, but uh, not transcending habits of thought that, that are the habits you're interested in. So, I guess my question would be: How do we know when a habit of thought has really been? Transcended has really been changed and transformed, or are these moments which we can find lots of moments of seeming transformation uh, the the reformation the 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 rather than the ending of a, of an old way of thought? Well, let me say something positive and then deal with your question directly, which is that um, the positive thing that I've seen uh, over the past decades is that the theologians, people who really make up, I think, the body of uh, understanding and teaching about the New Testament, about uh, Christian scripture, they overwhelmingly support the, the verdict of Nostra Aetate, um, and partic- particular readings of, of the Gospels and the Epistles that are set against these ancient ideas of, for example, supersessionism. Supersessionism is a teaching according to which the Church has replaced the Jewish people, and the Jewish people have no role in salvation. That, I think, is almost universally rejected by uh, scriptures of, of, of uh, I'm sorry, students of scripture, and they base they base their arguments on theology, on the principles of, of that discipline, and this 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 happens in some ways in league with people in the church, um, usually not in contest with people in the church, but it's sound, deeply uh, you know d- uh, deeply scholarly um, historical research, and so this this in, in a sense takes takes place. It's it's like, it's like a movement of I don't know. It's almost like a, a natural movement that happens without the church willing it at, at all. And what I see is um, but also more positive. Paul VI had very little to say about these issues. He was but John Paul II had a lot to say about them. Generally quite positive. I mean, he, although in, in in America among liberals like myself, liberal Catholics in particular. He's not, he's not off, often um, remembered very positively. In this issue, he had a, he had a very good sense of, of, of the theology, and he, he actually moved in new directions with, his, with, his, um, um, with some of his formulations. For example, referring to the, the Jewish people as the people of the covenant, um, a covenant never revoked. He said this several times. Mm-hmm. He refers to, referred to the Jews as the older brothers, um, making very clear that Jews continue to have a salvific mission. Um, Benedict, the, Benedict the 16th, when he was a cardinal, actually spoke in, uh, I think, more, um, um, uh, more loyally, uh, more in the spirit of Nostra Aetate. But there was this one Good Friday prayer in 2008, in which he, he, I don't know the full story of it, but should I go into the details? There was a, there was a moment in 2008. Yeah, well, anyway, absolutely. let me just, maybe I'll just. Uh, oh, absolutely. Oh, I can, okay, I can, actually, I think I even brought the, the text. So. Once a year, there's a, there's a Good Friday service at which uh, Catholic Church says prayers for many different groups. I've actually, I haven't been there since I, was, since I was a child, personally, but I did bring the text. And one, at one moment, in the current English and vernacular prayer that's said by virtually everybody who attends this, 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 this service, the following, let us pray for the Jewish people, the first to hear the word of God, that they may continue to grow in the love of his name and in faith, faithfulness to his covenant. Almighty and eternal God, long ago you gave your promise to Abraham and his posterity. Listen to your church as we pray that the people you first made your own may arrive at the fullness of redemption. We ask this through Christ our Lord. 
This is a prayer from 1970, which I think is in the spirit of Nostra Aetate. And then the, the, the current pope wanting to reach out, or the, well, the, 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 the emeritus pope, wanting to reach out to Catholics on the right, if I can simplify matters, introduced a, a prayer in Latin, but he translated it, or he had retranslated the prayer that existed from 1962 and in, included the following prayer, the following words. Let us also pray for the Jews that our God and Lord may illuminate their hearts that they acknowledge Jesus Christ is the Savior of all men. Um, Almighty and eternal God, who want that all men be saved and come to the recognition of the truth, propitiously grant that even as the fullness of the peoples enters thy church, all Israel be saved. So that, um, understandably, gave rise to significant criticism. But I argue in the book that actually the Vatican, in the words of uh, a cardinal in charge of Christian-Jewish relations, then quickly backpedaled and actually uh, refuted the, the implications of that prayer. A week later, um, this, this is uh, Cardinal Walter Kaspar wrote to Rabbi David Rosen of the International Jewish Committee on International Relations as follows. This is, by the way, complete, what do they call this in PR? Um, when you turn something around? Just spin. To spin. Yes, this is complete spin. Um, the text is a prayer inspired by St. Paul's letter to the Romans. In fact, Benedict's prayer was not at all inspired by Paul's letter to the Romans. Chapter 11, which is the very text that speaks of, of the unbroken covenant, which Benedict does not speak of or did not speak of. It takes, up, it takes up Paul's eschatological hope that in the end of time all Israel will be saved. As a prayer, the text lays all in the hands of God and not in ours. It says nothing about the how or when. So basically, Carmel Caspar went right back to Nostra Aetate, bypassing that prayer, which is said by you know, a very small, maybe fewer than 1% of Catholics a, a year, those who understand Latin. And uh, note that in his response, he goes back to Paul's letter to the Romans, he goes back to eschatology, and he, he, he reiterates the fact that there's no script for how Jews are to, to behave. So that would be my response to Benedict. You know, I wonder if I could ask a question. Um, because in your book, David, and in your presentation summary of it, uh, you spoke of the work of anti-Judaism, how it actually works. And I wanted to just get some better examples of, or some additional examples. So I believe in one of your chapters, you talk about the work of anti-Judaism in formulating medieval political theory. Is that a correct summary, I think, of or political thought? Yeah. Could you give us some examples of how anti-Judaism does that? Well, um, yes. Uh, I mean, this is a very old problem within Christianity. That is, is there such a thing as a Christian politics? Um, if my kingdom is not of this world, if there are two swords... Um, and, and, and one is the sword of uh, the secular sword and the other one is the divine. But if these are meant to be in, in a hierarchical relation with the divine being what really matters, uh, then how do you align the political with the earthly city, Augustine would call it, with the heavenly city? And uh, which is, of course, already invoking language that Paul mapped onto Jerusalem, the earthly Jerusalem and the heavenly Jerusalem. And this is a real problem for politicians. Emperors, Christian emperors, tend to want to uphold the law. It's, it's a good thing to have a law if you have a society that's going to function smoothly. Uh, but under Christian thought, the law is stigmatized as um, Jewish. Now, let me give you an example of the kinds of problems that can arise. 
the Emperor Theodosius was ruling over the Roman Empire in, uh, in, in, the, in late antiquity when there's a riot that burns down a synagogue. Now the law, a synagogue and a heretical church. Now the law pro- prohibits destruction of property like this. And so the emperor's count says that the monks who burnt down the church, the synagogue, excuse me, have to pay for its reconstruction. They can't just burn down buildings. Uh, Ambrose, the bishop of Milan, who uh, is the most powerful churchman in the West, uh, preaches before Theodosius, and he he preaches in the following terms. He says, look, the highest law is the law of God. God uh, began the burning of this church. If you uphold your earthly law over God's law, Emperor Theodosius, you will have given the Jews a victory over Jesus Christ, And you will have become, he doesn't say exactly this, you will have become a Jew. He says, remember your predecessor, who when he insisted on upholding the law, his subjects said of him, that king will not last long, he has become a Jew. And of course, Theodosius killed that predecessor. So so the threat of upholding earthly law over uh, divine law is, uh, is already encoded for Ambrose as Judaizing. Therefore, in a sense, all earthly politics is Judaizing. Augustine dealt with this problem differently. He said there is no such thing as uh, uh, politics is always under the sign of Cain, he said, because politics always has earthly ends and can only gain the rewards of earthly activities. In other words, earthly politics can't be uh, a, 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 Christian, a fully Christian activity. But note, who else bears the sign of Cain in Augustine's thought? The Jews are under the sign of Cain. So in a way, the earthly politician and the Jew stand side by side under the sign of Cain. This, in the Middle Ages, was put to work to the work of criticizing all the new rising kingdoms of the West, all the kingdoms that rebuilt themselves out of uh, the fall of the Roman Empire. So as that work was done, as kings are criticized, as sovereigns are criticized in terms of their being Jew lovers or Judaizing because of their tax policy, because of their legal policy, even in countries where there are no Jews, this becomes a powerful discourse of critique, of political critique. So um, it's not unrelated, of course, to what we call political anti-Semitism in modernity. It's not totally unrelated to what we call political anti-Semitism in ancient Egypt. They're all different. They're all, they don't owe any direct relation to each other either. I, I'm not claiming that they do. But there's a very interesting uh, centrality of this concept of overcoming Judaism in all of these political cultures. So uh, that, that would be one example. You know, one of the interesting things, John, in, in your book were the fascinating figures that you meet in these three scripts, uh, these three moments that you describe. And one of the most interesting, from my perspective, is Johannes Ostreicher. Could you tell us a little bit about the changes that he went through in these five moments of the, uh, of the church's uh, movement from 1933 to uh, Vatican II? So... Uh Johannes Oesterreicher, when he died um, in 1993 at the age of 89, was known as John Oesterreicher uh, because he died in Seton Hall University where he was a professor at an institute that he founded called the Institute for Judeo-Christian Studies. Um, He was born in 1904 in Moravia, present-day Czech Republic, of Jewish parents. Um, His father uh, was a veterinarian. He was very active in Zionist scouting in fact, was apparently the best uh, student of Hebrew in his class. 
but went off to Vienna to study religion. Um, sorry, not to study religion, study, study medicine, actually. Study medicine um, in the late teens. And one day came across a book called Excerpts from the Gospels, Words of Christ, uh, by an author named Houston Stewart Chamberlain, and picked up this book and began looking at some of the statements by Christ and was attracted to Christian thought and over time uh, became a Christian. Uh, Houston Stewart Chamberlain, for those of you who don't know, was actually one of the apostles of modern racism. And it's interesting that Oesterreicher's first book was actually a, a book written against racism. So he became a priest in about 1920 and 1926. He entered the Diocese of Vienna, they decided to make uh, use of his skills working with children and working with kids because of, of his experience in Zionist scouting. But then, uh, very soon in the early 1930s, he was bothered, he was troubled by news coming from Nazi Germany. He wanted to have some role in the diocese that would permit him to develop uh, arguments against racism, so they gave him um, uh, control over their mission to the Jews, strangely enough. Um, and in this, in, this, in this capacity, he argued against a lot of Christians of that day that actually Christian, that, that Jews um, would make good Christians. There were a lot of um, racist or racialized Christians who thought that Jews were so, um, so damaged in their gen- genetic material by refusing Christ that they couldn't become Christians. And so Oesterreicher felt that was a personal affront because he was a Jew who had become a, a Christian. And in the course of these years, 1933, 34, 35, he developed close relations with other Christians throughout Europe who opposed anti-Semitism, a major one of these people was Karl Thieme, the person I mentioned earlier, who was a theologian from Germany. Um, but at this period, the 1930s, he was convinced that Jews had um, the goal of becoming Christians and that until they did so, they would continue to suffer. He thought that even of his own parents. He must have implicitly. Um, this, this view followed him to the United States. He actually spent a couple of years in Paris, 1939, 1940, under the shadow of Nazi occupation, he broadcast anti-Nazi speech, speeches from Paris, calling Hitler the Antichrist over the, over the airwaves into Nazi Germany. He escaped the Gestapo, who were hunting for him in Paris in 1940, made his way to the States uh, from Portugal, um, and then continued trying to um, convert Jews. That was his job when he got to Manhattan. He learned English very quickly. He began, I don't know how he did it. I mean, he used to stand on a soapbox, but he didn't have very much success in doing this. And I think when you don't have much success, then you, you, you decide the issue needs more study. So then he founded his, <laughs> his, his institute for, uh, at Seton Hall University, his Institute for Judeo-Christian Studies. And over, over time, and I don't know exactly how the process worked, through conversation with Jews, he, he started to understand what the, this constant insistence that Jews become Christians sounded like to Jewish ears. And he, I, I don't know exactly when or how he evolved away from this position. And in 1960, when John XXIII called the Second Vatican Council and was um, implored by a Jewish survivor named Jules Isaac to put the issue of anti-Semitism on the council's agenda, he was then called as an advisor because he, he was one of the very, very few Christians who knew about uh, this issue. Um, he, helped, he helped draft the text of Nostra Aetate. And after that point, 1965, you see in his correspondence that his, 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 um, his friendships with, with members from the Jewish community, rabbis, some of them quite prominent, like Joseph Lichten, for example, um, became ever more prominent. 
um, and he began returning to some of his school, school, um, his school friendships with other, other people who were involved in Zionist scouting, some of whom were working for the State of Israel by that point, late 1960s. In the 1970s, Osterreicher makes frequent appearances in, I think it's called the House of Israel in New York City, speaking on behalf of the, of the State of Israel. So he became a Christian Zionist at the end of his life. So in a sense, he, he traced an arc of, 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 of an unusual sort of Christian thought, but originally from Jewish origin. This is just one example, I think, in, of the interesting uh, individuals, theological positions and theological biographies that you find in um, uh, your book. Now, I think uh, we should have some questions or comments from you in the audience. Do we have a microphone for over here in the... guys for coming. Um, I have a question for both of you, I guess. The question is, how comes the change only happened to appear after the Holocaust and the Spanish Inquisition in 1472 that began when they began exiling Jews is really ignored? And this is really where it start, started from after it went there from Egypt. I'm so glad you asked about the Spanish Inquisition. Nobody expects the Spanish Inquisition, but it's one of my specialties. <laughs> Um, I mean, I wouldn't draw a line from Egypt to Spain to, like, like Benzio Netanyahu did. I, I, I don't think that's historically at all correct. That would look a lot like what John is criticizing, a kind of unchanging migration of hatreds, which is not what I'm describing at all. But I think the events in Spain are an interesting problem, an interesting challenge, also to a challenge to some of the temporal divisions you want to make between modernity and pre-modernity. Um, you, you address them in your book briefly. You talk about uh, Spanish race, Spanish raza. I won't say racism because, but Spanish uh, anti purity of blood statutes not being a precedent for uh, for modern racism. But it is certainly a moment in which the reading of Paul, the reading of Romans, the reading of Galatians, the reading of all the Pauline epistles, is used to produce a total revolution in Catholic thought before. 1391 in the mass conversions of Jews to Christianity, the power of the sacrament of baptism, which is something you write a lot about, uh, was considered to be uh, uh, miraculous and to overcome any, uh, any particularities of the flesh. With the mass conversions, you see the emergence of a theology that argues that, in fact, baptism cannot overcome the stubborn Jewishness of uh, of the convert's flesh. And for generations, those converts cannot enjoy the full rights of uh, Christians by nature. And it's very interesting to see the theological debates around this, theological debates which are at first opposed by the papacy and then subscribed to by the papacy and supported by the papacy. Um, so it's a very interesting moment in which you could argue that a race theory, and we can call it a race theory because they called it rasa. The word race was invented in the 15th century, uh, was first applied to humans in precisely this context, uh, in order to explain why Jews couldn't fully convert. Now, does that have a linear relationship to what happens in uh, modernity? No, it does not. But does it show that the potentials of Pauline thought to generate these kinds of things are are there in different historical periods and that the work that thought can do when faced with dramatically different circumstances like the conversion of nearly all the Jews of a society can be suddenly transformed and can transform 
Catholic thought can transform the entire system of thought, even the things most sacred to that system, like the sacrament of baptism? Yes, I think it is a, a great example of just how powerful the interrelationship is between the system of thought and the uh, transformations in society. Another question. No, but I, I, John, uh, was, it was a, to both of us. Yeah, there are a couple of things. Um, just to, I'm a historian of the 20th century, so that's why I focus mainly in the 20th century. In fact, almost in, I think the book is almost entirely in the 20th century. It does go back to the 1890s, to modern racism. Um, but uh, after World War II and after the Holocaust, I think the general sense in, in the Catholic Church, and, and especially in the German Church, was that Nazism itself had been anti-Christian, and therefore they didn't believe there was any necessary relation between Christian thought and the Holocaust. And in particular, they didn't, they didn't see how the, uh, the, the agenda of conversion and mission to the Jews was a, was a problem. And in fact, um, the, the Jewish thinker Jules, Julie Zuck um, in 1948 even recognized this as, as a valid Christian position. It wasn't understood, I think, immediately after the war. It takes a while, I think, for these intellectual processes to, um, well, to, 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 to convince the, the, the first generation of adherents and then to take root in broader groups um, it, it's, also, it's also the case that, that um, Christians in general were not interested in, in, in the Holocaust. The Holocaust as, as, as an event in history wasn't, under, wasn't recognized uh, in Western publics as, 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 as an event as such until um, 19, the 1960s and 1970s. I read the Catholic press of the 1950s and there's virtually no, no mention of um, uh, Catholic relations to Jews as being an issue. And when John the Twenty Third called for the, the council, no Catholic bishop on earth actually suggested that uh, this this be an issue on the agenda. It wouldn't have happened. There wouldn't have been a statement against anti-Semitism had it not been for that appeal of Julie Zock to J- John the Twenty Third. But then once the, once the council was happening, then when I, I read the transcripts of the bishops, um, these are sec- secret transcripts from the from the time. The bishops who were involved in trying to work out this draft, and it's very clear. That, that they have a troubling sense that the Christianity does play a role, did, did have responsibility in bringing about the hatred that made the Holocaust possible. And therefore, when the bishops uh, vote in October of, of 1965, it's something like 2,221 in favor and 80 against. It's ma- massive support for this statement. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.